Then Jesus said to him, <clears throat> excuse me, go and do the same. Now that sets the tone for what we want to look at in, in the Lord's sermon this morning in Matthew 5, uh, 43 to 48. Things we want to be thinking about, the account of the Good Samaritan. What does that story reveal? Was it an account of how busy priests and Levites were so they didn't have a lot of time to spend on helping somebody that was in need and a Samaritan has nothing to do so he has a lot of excess time on his hands? No, uh, that's not it at all. It is an issue of the true condition of the hearts of the characters that were involved in this account. Two who were supposed to be followers of God proved not to be and one whom we in Jesus' day would never expect would be a follower of God, proved to be a follower of God. Uh, one of the great homiletics professors of our time uh, passed away a few years ago, and his name was Dr. Haddon Robinson. I like this quote of his, and he says this, Who you are determines what you will see, and what you see determines what you will do. Let me hit that again. Who you are determines what you will see, and what you see determines what you will do, and that is so correct. What's in your heart? What's in your heart is going to flow out, and what's important in your heart is what you're going to do. That is why when God looks at our, our bodies, he looks at our hearts first and not our outward appearance to find out what kind of a person we are. If you and I really belong to Jesus, certain things will flow from your heart, which is where they should be, uh, that will not be things that flow from the hearts of unbelievers. Their heart, according to the Bible, is a diseased heart, meaning it is a heart that is diseased by sin. So let's pick it up here in Matthew 5, still in the Lord's uh, Sermon on the Mount. And I want to start reading in verse 43. Here's what it says. <clears throat> you have heard that it was said, so Jesus is still using this same preaching formula. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, as we're going past here, if you have a good study Bible, you're going to notice something about this text, and that is Jesus is quoting here, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. That's all in capital letters. That's right out of the Old Testament. But you'll notice when he goes on to the second part of that, it is not in capital letters because there is no actual statement in the Old Testament about anybody hating, all right, if you will, your enemies. Uh, so let's, let's keep that in mind. So verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The answer to that rhetorical question is yes, that's what they do. In fact, uh, we're going to meet a tax collector that Jesus makes one of his disciples in chapter 9, and the first thing he's going to do is throw a banquet for Jesus and invite all of his friends who happen to be uh, irreligious Israelites and tax collectors. Uh, tax collectors don't have a lot of friends, so they invite people just like them to their parties. So Jesus says, do not even the tax collectors do the same? Yes, and we're going to see that in the text of Matthew. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Answer, yes. Therefore, you are to be perfect. We're going to call that, uh, we're, we're going to talk about what that word means, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
God did not tell us just to love our neighbors. He also told us to love our enemies. And that's, that's when it gets difficult for us to do. I want to go back and look at verse 43 as we begin to uh, wade our way through this and understand what it has to say. Jesus said, I know that you have heard the teachers of Israel have told you, love your enemy, I mean, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Uh, the point I want to make about that is that popular teaching of God's word is not always accurate teaching. Popular teaching of God's word is not always accurate teaching. I'm sure people like to hear it's okay for you to hate your enemies. That's easy to do. Jesus said that's really not in the heart of God. That's not what God wants you to do. It certainly isn't what God did for you and me. The Bible is very clear in Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, that God died for sinners, enemies, not his friends. God didn't die for a single friend. Jesus didn't give up his life for one single friend in the human race. They were all enemies. We were all enemies of Jesus. Now, I'm going to say that there is a lot of examples today, and you can find them anywhere. You can go home this afternoon, find them on TV or on the radio, of popular teaching in churches that has nothing to do with the heart of God in the text of Scripture. Today, pastors are pulling back the reins on what the Word of God says. We don't want to offend anybody by what we say, because if we offend people, then they're going to find a church where they won't be offended, and then we're going to lose them, and we're going to lose our ministry. I will never forget standing on a hill outside of a church where my uncle went to church, and it was uh, on near, near the foothills in uh, northern Denver, which was actually in a suburb, and I remember we were going to his church, and it was probably the biggest show I've ever seen in my life. Hundreds of people, you had to walk through the bagel area and the cafeteria area to get there. We're meeting in the gymnasium, and it's just a light show. This screen flashes, this screen flashes. The pastor was literally jumping uh, you know, over this little barrier into the choir pit, which they were gone at the time, so he didn't step on anybody. Um, uh, I can't do stuff like that. I'd trip over the little thing, and, and he'd go find another church. I remember walking out of there, and I think, why do people go here? Because I, I, I do stuff like this. I timed the pastor. He spent seven minutes in the Word of God. He spent 40 minutes telling stories. And I remember looking down the hill, and it's one of those days where it's like when you think you see mirages, you can see a long ways. I counted six megachurches down the hill, maybe within the next mile or so, and I thought, well, this is why we have this show. This is why we're telling people what they want to hear. Because if they don't like yours, they've got a lot of other choices right down the hill here that they can go to. So it seems like there's a lack of commitment. It seems like there's popular teaching uh, that God's word is uh, something that really is more than or even uh, something that it's not. And it has nothing to do with the heart of God in scriptures. I think this is what Jesus is doing in his Sermon on the Mount. He keeps saying, you've heard it said this, you've heard this said, you've heard that said. But what you really need to know about what God thinks of this is his heart underneath these things. He is attacking the shallow and, I'm going to say, ungodly theology of the religious leaders of his day. He's telling them, you're not really hearing the whole truth. Sometimes uh, these things are built on half-truths, like God is love. Is God love? Yes. But that's not the whole story. God is more than just love. However, we know that it takes more than just love uh, to fully define God. God is also righteous. God is also just. It also says that our God uh, can be wrathful against sin if he has to be. Uh, he's more than just uh, this ooey-gooey marshmallow in the sky of love. He is also just. He is righteous. And he cares about the issue of sin. Uh, and he wants us to as well. 
Health, wealth, and prosperity are not part of the good news of the gospel, for instance. The Lord said they hated me, they will hate you. God did not promise us, as he did in the Old Testament, that if you obey me, I will cover you over with riches and wealth. Uh, that, that was gone with the New Testament. Now he's going to talk about things like they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Uh, you may find yourselves being persecuted and running away from that persecution, however it may happen. We also hear today that everyone gets to go to heaven. I've heard people preach that there is uh, no hell at all, so don't be afraid of it. Uh, apparently, they haven't read the Bible or they don't care what the Bible says. That God doesn't care about morality is what they're saying. That God looks the other way when we sin. All of those things are not true. That's not true at all. The Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18, and now we'll see what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Leviticus 19.18 Verse 18 says, you shall not take vengeance. Okay, that's a different passage. That's Romans 12. Nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. That's about forgiveness. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, when Yahweh God spoke that, uh, he had a certain idea about what a neighbor was. You know what a neighbor is? Well, it's not the person that lives next to me or down the road from me. It's anybody that I come in contact with that's around me where I might be in a position to do something for them. A neighbor is not defined by just the people on my, my block, okay? Uh, I treat the people on my block a little bit special, so I get the tractor out in the winter and clear their driveways and stuff like that. If I, if I have a chance, unless Cecil beats me to it and does his by his hand, uh, I'm, I'm coming right after we get the church done. And uh, whoever that person is, is a neighbor. And that's the person I need to take care of. Oh, oh the memories that brings back for Annie as she leaves here, huh? It's like being mom all over again. Good luck to her. Okay. Uh, the Bible then does teach we should love our neighbors. The question is, who are our neighbors? That's why Jesus told this, this lawyer, when he asked this question, who, who felt bad about the answer, said, well, I, I need to rem you know, rectify this, and said, well, who's my neighbor? Turns out it's anybody you come across that you can help, somebody that's near you. All right? And that's not the way the Old Testament, Old Testament people read it. You're a Philistine, I hate you. You're my enemy. All right? You're, you're uh, coming in from Lebanon, I hate you. You're my enemy. You come from Syria, I hate you. You're my enemy. That is not what Jesus said. So this phrase, and hate your enemies, is not a clear statement in the Old Testament of something that God told us to do. So where do they get this? Well, there are some possibilities in uh, some imprecatory psalms, and that would be the possibility this teaching may have come from a place like Psalm 139. Well, let's look at it so we can uh, get a picture of that. Psalm 139, and I want to look at verses 21 and 22. Now, this happens to be one of the Psalms of David, and he says in verse 21, speaking to God, he's talking about, I, I, I need men of bloodshed and men of wickedness to get out of here. He says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. I think there's some things that need to be said about that. And if you're here in a couple of years, in the summer, we're going to be uh, doing Psalm 139. I'll tell you what that is. Uh, but just uh, suffice it to say that the Hebrew word for hate is sana, and it means mostly being unwilling to put up with somebody. All right? And so David had a different flavor to what he was saying. We read it in our, in our language a little bit differently. 
it also is very true that if you're going to be against somebody, you better make sure that God is against them before you're against them in what they stand for and what they do. Uh, we have a habit of saying, I'm against somebody or I hate somebody, I don't like somebody, because we uh, don't get along with them. The issue is, where do they stand with God? So there's a lot of things that go into that, but that may be where uh, the, the teachers of the day got this uh, stuff that they were passing on to others. But the issue for Jesus is going to be that he believed that as believers, we need to do better than this hating our enemies thing. Dr. Craig Keener said this, popular piety exemplified in the Qumran community's oath uh, to, and quoting the oath there, hate the children of darkness, may have extended such biblical ideology in Jesus' day. So he's just trying to find out where did this thing come from and why are they teaching it. He said it may have possibly have come from uh, the writings of the Qumran community. Going on there, Jesus says, this is what you have heard, but there is a better way that would please God. It is his way of saying, I don't want you acting like unbelievers around you anymore. I want you to act like children of God. Unbelievers don't have the source of love that believers do. The fact that the Spirit of God indwells us should make a difference in how we treat other people. It should make a big difference in the way we live, what we say and what we do, and our willingness to look at somebody in need and say, you know, is, is that a neighbor? I passed somebody on the highway the other day, but I slowed down to make sure because all, all I saw there at first was a young woman, looked like a flat tire. As I got closer, I found out there were some other adult men there. They can take care of it. Otherwise, I would have stopped and helped her change a tire <laughs> if I'm strong enough to unloosen a lug nut anymore. Um, anyway, we have God's love in us. We have the Spirit of God in us, and we can and we must share that with other people. Moving on in verses 44, and 45. We learned there that God's children love their enemies. Now that's different than what they heard in the synagogues in Israel, but we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, pray for those who abuse us in some way because of our Christianity. Now in verse 44, the first part there, the mandate, the command from Jesus, uh, he said, is to, is, uh, as, he, as he quotes these folks, is to hate your enemies. Uh, and he says, I don't want you to hate your enemies. I want you to love your enemies. That's different stuff. Uh, people would say, you know, here in our synagogues, nobody's ever said that before. What are you talking about? How is it you want us to love our enemies? Well, the Greek word for love here is, uh, is the normal word for love, agape. That's the uh, noun form. Uh, the verb form is being used here. Uh, same word, agapeo. And we know that that is to dedicate yourself to loving another and their well-being, and seeking to see the Lord's will done in their life. Love is dedicating yourself to another person, seeking to see the Lord's will done in their life. Now, it's not without emotion. Don't forget that. But there is an aspect of dedicating oneself to the well-being of an enemy. Think of it that way. And seeking to see God's will done in his or her life. What do I want for an enemy most of all? I want that enemy to become a friend. And the only one who can really do that is Jesus Christ through the power of his blood, and he changes their life, and they go from being an enemy status to being a friend status. That's what we want, and so we befriend them before they get there. And by the way, that's how Jesus loved us. I don't think you can reach a person with the good news about Jesus by hating another person. Uh, to that note, Dr. Blomberg said this, whatever emotions may be involved, love here refers to generous, warm, costly, self-sacrificing for another's good. Isn't that what the Samaritan did? 
all those things. And I think he's right. We should do them as well. Sometimes it's hard enough to forgive a brother. Some of us know that. Let alone love an enemy. One cannot love an enemy until one first forgives that enemy for whatever hurt they have done. And I wanted to read to you uh, something that I found from uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer that I thought was appropriate here. And he's talking about the levels of love. Now, I don't know if this actually happened or it's just an illustration, but here's what he says. Perhaps you read the story about a woman and her husband who came to their pastor and they said, we're going to get a divorce, but we want to make sure that you approve of it. Uh, There are people who come to pastors hoping that when they say, there's no feeling left in our marriage, in our relationship, the pastor will say, well, uh, if there's no feeling left, then the only thing you can do is to split up. Instead, the pastor says to the husband, looking him in the eye, he said, the Bible says, you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. He says, uh, oh, I can't do that. So the pastor says, well, if you can't begin at that level that Jesus talks about, then begin on a lower level. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Can you at least love her as much as you would love a neighbor? And the husband says, "Eh, no, that's too high of a level. And so the pastor says to him, the Bible says, (laughs) love your enemies. (laughs) Begin there. That's kind of funny, but it's kind of serious. Love your enemies, because that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. In verse 44b, we pray for those who persecute us. Since Jesus said it, shouldn't we do it? Have you ever tried it? Have you ever prayed for an enemy, the kind of prayer that you would pray for a friend? I think some of us have prayed for enemies before, but it wasn't maybe the nicest prayer we've ever heard. Uh, We have to forgive our persecutors before we can do this. So are you willing to start by forgiving the person that hated you or was mean to you or whatever they did? And the question is, what shall I pray? Lord, help him stop persecuting me? Well, that, that would be okay. We don't want to be persecuted. Or Lord, change her heart. Or help me to find ways to show that I care about them. Has that ever come out of your mouth in prayer? Help me find a way to show that I really care about them. Help me find a way to show that I love them. So in verse 45, loving like the Father, and that's what really uh, puts the definition in here for us. It says, do this so that, here's the reason or the purpose, so that you may be sons of your Father. See, if I'm going to be a son of the Father in heaven, or a daughter of the Father in heaven, then this is the way my Father loves, this is the way I need to love. And when we make, make God the Father our example for where we should be with this thing, we understand that we are probably uh, pretty short of where we're supposed to be. Loving like the Father, according to this verse, shows that you and I are genuinely members of his family. If we can't love like this, there's something wrong with our relationship with God. We need to check that out. So here are two illustrations how God does this very thing, all right? He says, here's, here's what God does. This Father in heaven who loves his enemies, he says, who is in heaven, for he causes, and uh, I, was, I was enthralled with this, he causes his son. Did he have to tell us that? I mean, he created everything. Did we have to know it was his son? <laughs> I think what he wants us to know is, hey, I'm in control of this thing. This is me. It's my son. It's my earth. It's my creation. He causes his son, he's in charge of it, 
to rise on the evil and the good. What would that look like in the morning if God only let light shine on the good people? And you look down the block and you see a few houses lit up and a few houses not lit up, you know. And you go certain places and it's dark there. No, God lets the sun shine everywhere, evil and good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, you, you very seldom would walk out in a rainstorm. Uh, the other day when Noelle went to Kansas City, she said it rained uh, from basically Harlan all the way to Overland Park and it never let up, just torrential rain, all right, just raining all the time. And I have to believe that there may be some unrighteous people between, uh, let's say, Harlan and Overland Park, right? Would you agree with me? I happen to know a couple of them, all right? So the point is this, they got the rain. And the nice thing is we got some rain here, and I didn't have to water Noelle's plants while she was gone. So that's a blessing. But anyway, I have to love like the Father loves. Let me ask you a question. If you, if you controlled the rain, you don't. If it was your son, it's not. Would only your friends get water on their ground and light for their crops? Or because you were in control, you'd take it away from the people you don't like? God's not like that. When God waters a wicked man's crops, do you let him? I mean, inside, are you for it? When God prospers the unrighteous people who maybe got rain last night and you didn't, who give him no glory, no honor, no credit for anything that maybe we could show them love to, who may not give us any credit, honor, or glory for what we did for them. Could we do that too? And then in verses 46 to 48, we are to have a remarkable love just as our Heavenly Father has. See, he is our, he is our goal for what we're going to emulate in this life of ours. We are to have a remarkable love just as our Heavenly Father has. In verse 46, there is nothing extraordinary about loving those who love you back. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The answer is, I don't have a reward. He says, you guys don't like tax collectors because they're usually dishonest and they steal money from you. Uh, you know, uh, the tax collectors, they spend time with their buddies who are also tax collectors, right? And, and he's, he's using them as an example at this point. Even the tax collectors do the same. Matthews or Levi, whatever you like to call him, he's going to prove that point. In chapter 9 of the book of Matthew, he's going to have a, have a party for Jesus. The only people that are going to come are irreligious Jews and other tax collectors and Jesus and the disciples. And the Pharisees are going to have a fit about it. There's nothing extraordinary about loving those who love you back. Even tax collectors, known for dishonesty and greed, love those who love them, which, you know, at times may just be their moms. There is no reward for easy, effortless love. You know love is costly, don't you? The Bible teaches us that. You've tried it. Easy loving does not make God notice from heaven. Oh, there's Greg loving somebody that loves him back again. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Write that down in the books. Let's, let's give him a reward for that when he gets here. Let's, let's make sure that doesn't get you know go by the wayside. No. Easy loving does not make God's notice in heaven to the point that he's going to write it down in a book and hold it for future reward. Certainly, I should do better than people who don't care enough about others to be honest with them, like tax collectors. That was his point. It should never be proven that we didn't love more than someone who doesn't know Jesus. 
It should never be that way. I'll never forget, and I've told this before years ago, but uh, we had a person that was using our phone number back when we all used landlines, and they were charging overseas phone calls, big ones, to our, our church phone. And when we discovered that, I called the company, and they put me in charge with a phone manager. And I said, uh, we've got this person. They're making overseas calls and charging it to our phone number, and they're expensive. Uh, what are we going to do about this? How do we get it stopped? And uh, he said, well, let me look into this a little bit. And I said, uh, is there any way? I mean, should we take him to court or something like that? And it's dead silence on the phone. <laughs> what? Are you there? He said, uh, is this a church? I said, yeah. You wouldn't have him be the pastor, would you? I said, yeah. He said, well, why, don't, why wouldn't it be the first thing we think about is pray for this person? <laughs> oh, that's a good thought. That was going to be my next thought. Yeah. <laughs> That's loving like the world. And an unbeliever uh, loves like that, not us. In verse 47, if you only greet your brothers, or let's say your friends, the people that you like, if you only greet them and you have no time for anybody else, what is there that's remarkable about that? What is there? The words, what more, in the text, come from the Greek word perisos, which means that which is remarkable. Something not ordinary encountered uh, by, by us in life, but is extraordinary. If you go to the doctor and you have them look at something and test something, you want the notes to say, uh, and his nose was unremarkable. That's, 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 not a, that's not an attack on you that you have an ugly nose. Uh, if they say the nose is remarkable, you know, oh, I have a remarkable nose. No, it means there's something wrong, and they can make a remark about it, and they're going to put it in your notes. If it's not remarkable, it just, it's okay. It doesn't mean anything. And uh, here we're, we're getting the sense that our love is to be remarkable. There should be something good somebody can say about our love because of the way it's done. Uh, Plenty the Younger said of Christians in the first century, my, how they love one another. What would they say about us? Some failing this lesson refuse to love their brothers. And there's, there's a warning in the Bible about that in 1 John and I'm going to read that as soon as I can get to it. First John 3.15. It says this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Wow, that's strong language. And it has a lot to do with our attitude. Do we really love people that are not loving us back and not our friends, maybe even our enemies? Uh, is, that, is that remarkable about us? It's supposed to be. Do I go beyond the way unbelievers talk and act about other, others? Someone said this, almost everyone looks after their own. That is so true. I added to the quote, but what about those we disown? We take care of all those that are our own, but what about those that we have disowned? If you can't even say hello in the hallway to someone who is difficult, what kind of follower of Jesus are you? Um, Dr. Comfort said this, there are differences between cultural norms and kingdom norms. Did you know that? Too often we look at our culture and we're grading ourselves on the culture. The culture is pagan. 
The culture is godless. Why would we ever use in this lifetime them as a standard of how we are to act? We are to act, and he's exactly right. We have a kingdom culture. We have a kingdom outlook and changes everything. It changes everything we think about our culture. It changes everything we think about each other. There's a great difference between cultural norms and the norms of the kingdom, and that's what Jesus is painstakingly showing us in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 48, when we act in these ways, the ways we're supposed to, loving our enemies, we are emulating the Father's perfection. Now, don't get overwhelmed. I think Dr. Walward uh, covers this correctly when he said of perfection. While sinless perfection is impossible in this life, he means, godliness in its biblical concept is attainable. And I think we could very well read the word godly in there. God wants to see in us the character that he has. One illustration of that, and then we'll, we'll begin to close here. Uh, the first part of that illustration comes from Luke 23, verse 34. If you want to look at that with me, Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus is on the cross, and he says this. But Jesus was saying, Father, so here's Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among them. Jesus is losing everything. And he asked the Father to forgive him. Ooh. Could I do that with an enemy? Could I do that with somebody who absolutely hates me? Maybe wants to kill me? Is there power available for us to do that? Apparently the answer is yes. Luke 7.60. This is Stephen. Right before he dies because people are throwing rocks at him. They're hitting him in the skull, in the back, in the arms. They're breaking bones. He's losing consciousness. Verse 60 says in Acts 7, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he died. Let me leave you a few things here uh, that we can pick up from this text other than what we've already talked about or to reiterate. Number one, I want you to note, please, uh, that's that NB sign, nota bene, take special note here. Note, please, that love and prayer can be commanded and so should be obeyed. Jesus said, if you feel like it, you can pray for your enemies. Is that right? No. He said, I'm telling you, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. It's a command. So that leads me to the second thing here. If you and I are not doing this, and it's up to you to decide if you're going to do it. It's up to me to decide. I, I can't decide for you. You can't decide for me. But if you are not doing this, try it. Just try it from your heart. You can't just make it up. But give it two months. Pick out one of the people that doesn't like you. Pick out an enemy. Pick out somebody that is just opposed to you. And if you can find somebody like that. I know that there's some of you everybody loves no matter what. But give it two months and see what God has in store for those who obey this command. Take, just take God to task. Say, okay, you say I should do this. I'm going to do it and see what happens. Thirdly, plan an act of kindness. That means you've got to sit down and think about it. Plan an act of kindness for one of your enemies. 
and carry it out. Do it. See what happens. And I think you'll taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a lot of ways to eliminate the anger of a person that's angry with you. Like if they're yelling at you, you don't yell back. That's right out of Proverbs. You know that. A kind word, a soft word turns away wrath. Well, also giving them a gift might turn away their wrath wrath as well. If you're rafting, there may be some wrath there. That's where that came from. But you know what I mean. Plan an act of kindness. Sit down and do it. The fourth one, the heart that can't do this is spiritually diseased. And I know you don't have a heart like that. I know that's not your heart. You have the presence of the Spirit of God, just like Stephen did. And you and I can do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes the things you tell us, we look at those and we think, wow, this is difficult. This is something we don't see in the world. But then we're looking at it in a worldly way. Instead, let us see that the same spirit that indwelt the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry, that empowered him to do the miracles that he did, that he relied upon for those things, is the same spirit that is in us. And I pray that you would give us courage, that you would give us a kingdom attitude, that we would draw not on human love but divine love so that we can love our enemies and do good to those who do evil to us. Not only because that's what you told us to do, but because that's what Jesus exemplified at every turn in his life. So we thank you and praise you. And we look forward to those things that you're going to do for those who are going to take up the challenge and pray for somebody that's an enemy. Do something good for someone who's an enemy to see what you can do and how you'll use it. And I know that in our own life, our own heart, it will be used to strengthen our bond with you. For that we give thanks. In your name we pray. Amen.